message on Romans chapter 14. And over the last couple of messages here, we've been talking about uh, this principle uh, that Paul lays down beginning in verse 13 and unpacks throughout the rest of the chapter, uh, that we are not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And at the very least, we saw this morning that this is a very serious issue. We saw the strong language that Paul uses. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's verse 15. Again in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. And so even as I tried to show this morning, it's true that you or I cannot cause a true believer to lose their salvation. Nevertheless, we do have great power in the lives of one another. We have, by God's grace and by God's spirit, the power to help each other go far in holiness. We have the power to help each other go far in being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. But we also have great power to really imperil each other's souls. And to do each other great harm. There are few things in the world that compares with the glory of belonging to a church family. But there's also danger. It is a wonderful privilege to be an active participant in the family of God. But with great power comes great responsibility. And so that's what we're looking at. Um, I want to bring it in to our discussion of this subject by noting four, four, four further truths uh, that Paul has for us. Uh, we've already seen, uh, I'll sum it up this way, that to put a stumbling block before a brother or a sister is to do anything that tempts them to sin against God and to violate their own conscience. So to put a stumbling block before a brother or sister is to do something that tempts them to sin against God by violating their own consciences. Now, four further truths. Let's read again, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, 
Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So as we continue unpacking these verses, here is the next truth for us to consider. It is possible to do what you believe is good in such a way that it gains an evil reputation. So I'll say it again. It is possible for you to be doing something that you're convinced is a good and perfectly fine thing to be doing, but to do it in such a way that it gains an evil reputation. It's verse 16. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So, let's put ourselves back in our first century sandals. Imagine ourselves as part of this church here in Rome. Remember, there were two factions when it came to this issue of eating meat. One faction of the church was convinced that it was sinful, evil, wicked for Christians to eat meat. They ate vegetables. They did not eat meat. They were not legalists. They were not trying to earn their salvation through law-keeping. They were real believers in Jesus. They were trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation. They loved Jesus, and they were convinced that it is dishonoring to their Savior to eat meat. The other faction in the church knew that that wasn't right. They knew that their well-meaning brothers and sisters who thought eating meat was evil were, were wrong. These Christians knew what Paul was saying in verse 14. Nothing is unclean in itself. So these Christians ate meat, and they thanked God for the meat, and they honored God as they ate their meat with grateful hearts. Well, in verse 16, Paul is speaking to the second group. And he's telling them that it is possible for them to do what is good and permissible in such a way that it gains a reputation for evil. If the group keeps eating meat right in front of their other brothers, even tempting their other brothers, hey, try some of these lamb chops. It's an act of cruelty. They're tempting their brothers to violate their consciences before God. And others who see this might think, I don't want to be one of those meat eaters. Look at how they treat their brothers and sisters. Suddenly a practice that's perfectly fine gets a bad reputation because of the way the meat eaters are behaving. All right, let's bring that to our contemporary context. Where do we see that happen around us? Well, one example is with Calvinism. Uh, I am convinced from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes that the Bible teaches the doctrines of grace. The the Bible teaches what is commonly called the five points of Calvinism. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And frankly, when rightly understood, those doctrines of grace are some of the most wonderful, glorious, life-giving, hope-increasing, joy-strengthening truths in the world. But how many times do we see Calvinists who believe right doctrine, but they give that doctrine a bad name by their arrogance or their bad behavior? In fact, it happens so often with people who've just begun to understand Calvinism that there's a name for it. They call it the cage stage. 
Cage stage Calvinism. This is when a person has for the first time begun to understand the truths of, wow, I was chosen before the foundations of the world by the sheer mercy of God. And they're so excited about the truth that they just can't stop talking about it, but not in a good way. They begin to beat people over the head with it. Um, They look down on people who don't agree with them. Um, This person says things like, well, if you just read your Bible, you'd understand. Um, With his smugness, his condescension, his pride, he gives true doctrine a terrible name. Another example, I've seen this with some who've chosen to educate their children through homeschooling or private schools. Uh, not, not all folks who homeschool or do private school are like this, but I have met some moms and dads who speak so condescendingly of public schools that they hurt the very cause they're trying to support. People hear them and they think, well, if that's what homeschoolers are like, Or if that's what private schoolers are like, I'd rather be a public school family any day of the week. Now, those are just two examples out of thousands. So you think of something that you regard as good. Think of some practice that you wish more Christians agreed with you about. right? Think of some truth you wish more Christians believed. It is possible to so arrogantly, recklessly, and selfishly speak and act that you give that practice of that belief a bad name. And so that's our first truth here. Paul's giving us a warning. Meat eaters, you're right. In and of of itself, meeting is fine. But if you're eating in a way that's being unloving to your brothers and sisters, you're giving a right act a bad name. You're hurting your cause. Second truth here. God calls us to understand the priorities of his kingdom. God calls us to understand the priorities of his kingdom. This is verse 17. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there were likely some in the church in Rome, probably from a Jewish background, who had never eaten pork. They had grown up under the Old Testament law. Eating pork was unlawful for them. Now that they had become Christians and had understood that Christ was the fulfillment of the law and understanding this truth that all things in and of themselves are clean, they were finally free in their consciences to eat pork. And you can imagine that the new Christian from a Jewish background eating a barbecue sandwich for the first time with a clean conscience. Right? I mean, they, they embrace that, that freedom. They, they thank God for that freedom, and they take that first bite, and it's so good, and they think, wow, being a Christian is awesome. Maybe that converted Jew in Rome gets together with other converted Jews in Rome, and they just talk about how much they, be, they enjoy being able to eat and drink things they used not to be allowed to eat and drink. Free from the law, oh, happy condition, they were saying, about the regulations that they used to live under. Maybe this even begins to seep into their witnessing. They, they would say, my Jewish friend, you need to become a Christian, then you can eat pork ribs. 
Become a Christian. Then you can have honey-glazed ham. So you have some folks here, and they're, they're loving their freedom in Christ. They're loving, enjoying the gifts of the world that God has given to them. And then there are other Jewish Christians in the same church who love Jesus, delight in Christ, and are still convinced that they should not eat pork. Now, that might not be the precise issue here in Romans 14, but it's a, it's a realistic example. So you have two groups, one glorying in how much they love being a Christian because of what they can eat and drink, and another that loves Jesus, but their consciences are still bound to the dietary laws that they grew up under. And Paul is saying to the first group that they need to be more thoughtful and loving towards the second group, because in the eyes of the second group, the first group is glorying in sin. In the eyes of the second group, the first group is glorying in something evil, and this grieves the second group and may even tempt them to participate in something that would cause their consciences to condemn them and riddle them with guilt. And then Paul just cuts to the heart of the matter by saying, look, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Yes, Freedom in Christ does mean freedom from dietary laws, but that is not what Christianity is mainly about. That is not the heart of why people should become Christians. Jewish believer, if you think the best thing about being a Christian is being able to eat pork, you've missed everything. Unbelievers enjoy pork all the time. Being free to eat meat is not what marks a Christian or distinguishes a Christian. Here is what Christianity is all about, Paul says. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So barbecue-loving Christians, for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of peace, because of your joy in the Holy Spirit, you should be willing to give up that barbecue if that's what love demands. If loving your brother or sister in Christ means not grieving them by eating pork, put it away. Because the kingdom is about higher things, better things, sweeter things, more important things. The kingdom of Christ is about love. And so he's, he's reorienting them to the priorities of the kingdom. Peace and righteousness and joy in the spirit. These are way more important than whether or not you can eat that or drink that. Third truth, just spells out directly what Paul has been saying throughout the entire passage. Put simply, we should be willing to put aside our rights for the sake of our brother or sister. We should be willing to put aside our rights for the sake of our brother or sister. Are you willing to do that? Do you love the people in this room and in this church so much that you would give up God-given freedoms that you have for their sake. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, when you live this way, loving your brother and sister more than your rights, you're serving Jesus Christ. You are walking in a way acceptable to God, a way that he affirms, a way that he pleases. Not only that, you'll also be living in a way that earns the approval of others. 
Few people in this world are going to respect you because you insist on your rights no matter what harm it does to the people around you. That won't gain respect. But even unbelievers can't help but respect and even love you more as they see you sacrifice your rights for the sake of people around you. Love-driven self-denial earns you, and more importantly, the gospel, a good reputation. A reputation that honors the Lord Jesus Christ that you serve. You're Christ's ambassador, and we're to walk in a way that reflects his own self-denying love. Look at the second half of verse 20. Second half of verse 20. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So, So even when you're right... Your actions are permissible, they're clean, they're good. Those same actions become sin when they're done in a way that makes your brother stumble. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Do you want to do good? Be willing to give up anything that would cause your brother or your sister to stumble. All right, so let's get very practical. We're a Baptist church. Baptist churches often have members with various views on all kinds of things. Lottery, tattoos, but a big one is alcohol. So we're going to use that as our example in applying this. If you are convinced that drinking alcohol in moderation is a permissible practice for Christians... How are you going to love your brothers and sisters in this church that are convinced that drinking alcohol is a sin? Well, for one, you're not going to go drink alcohol in front of your brother. Because you know that grieves him. You know that your fellow believer in this church loves you and cares for you and it pains him every time he sees you drink. And even if you think he's way off base, even if you think his reasons are wrong, your love for him means you're not going to choose to drink in front of your brother and grieve his heart. Second, you're not going to talk about your favorite alcoholic drink in front of your brother. You're not going to have conversations about your favorite beer or wine in front of him. Or how much you enjoy that new local brew. That grieves your brother. And frankly, your brother is a billion times more valuable than any drink. Third, you're not going to serve alcohol to your brother or tempt him to drink in any way. If you're hosting a dinner at your house, you're not going to serve alcohol there. If you're eating out with him at a restaurant, you're not going to offer to buy him a drink. Because you know how he thinks about this. You're not going to tempt him to sin against his own conscience. This is the idea of verse 22. Look at that verse with me. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now, if you take that verse out of context, boy, that seems really strange. Paul, are you telling us to keep our faith to ourselves? The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Paul, are you telling us not to witness, not to be a light, not to be salt? Are you telling us just to keep our... No. In the context, it's clear what Paul is saying. He's saying you must not impose your convictions on someone else. You cannot force and you must not try to force your convictions on your brothers and sisters. You can talk with them. You can discuss with them. You can try and persuade them. But at the end of the day, each person must answer to God. And your conviction about an issue before God is a vertical reality, not a horizontal reality. Don't impose your convictions about issues. We're talking here about gray issues, issues the Bible doesn't specifically address, for example. Don't impose your convictions upon other people. Paul says, if you have a clean conscience about something, If you're able to engage in some kind of practice and and participate in it, and you're able to have a clean conscience before God, he says, that's wonderful. And and it is. When you can look at what you approve as good, and you find that it fits perfectly with what God has called good, that's a wonderful thing. Someone else might not be in that same place. What you're confident about, they may still have doubts about. Is this morally acceptable or not? Is getting a tattoo, is it morally acceptable or not? I just, I don't know. Buying that lottery ticket or even just working in a place that sells lottery tickets? Attending a gay wedding? Verse 23 says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you're unsure, I don't know if what I'm doing is right. I don't know if I should do this. If you doubting, thinking it might be a sin, but I'm going to risk it. I'm going to chance it. That's sin. Because God is too holy to be trifled with that way. You might ask this question. Justin, why not tell those who think alcohol is permissible... To just give it up entirely for the sake of their brother or sister in Christ. In other words, why not call those who believe that drinking alcohol is okay, why not call them to complete and total abstinence from alcohol as an act of love towards their fellow believers? Well, think about it this way imagine it's a different issue. And I think an easy one to understand is wearing shorts. Suppose some members of our church are convinced that wearing shorts is a sin. Should we then all forgo wearing shorts altogether at any time, at any place, for the sake of those believers? Of course not. Or what about those Christians, and there is a growing movement of this right now. There's a growing movement of Christians who believe that Christian women should wear head coverings in worship. By the way, there's actually some pretty interesting arguments to be made about why women should wear head coverings in church. So if someone in this church becomes convinced that a woman ought to wear a head covering in worship, and that if she doesn't, she's sinning, does that mean that every woman in this church, whether you believe that or not, suddenly has to wear head coverings for the sake of that one? You see, there is a line here. 
We are to be careful with one another's consciences, but we are not to be held captive by one another's consciences. Christ has not called us out of a bondage to sin only to bring us into another kind of bondage, a bondage to the convictions of everybody around us and whatever they may happen to be. Also, there will be times when views contradict. And if you're trying to please men rather than Christ, you'll find yourself in trouble. So, for example, there are many Christians, and this is a rising number, friend of mine I noticed was posting this this week on Facebook, rising number of Christians who believe that not drinking alcohol in the Lord's Supper is a sin. They point out that wine is what Jesus instituted in the Lord's Supper. It's a clear command. They say if you're not using actual wine in the Lord's Supper, you are violating the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Suppose you have two people in the same church. All alcohol is sinful. Not drinking alcohol in the Lord's Supper is sinful. And you're trying to not be a stumbling block. What do you do? That's tricky. Thankfully, Paul gives us an overarching principle. He doesn't give us a clear answer for every situation. That would be impossible because that would be a much longer Bible, wouldn't it? If he gave us an answer for every situation. But he does give us an overarching principle, a sure guide for how to handle every disagreement of this kind. And it's our fourth truth. We are to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual love building. Verse 19. Everybody see verse 19? So then, he says... So that in light of everything I've said, in light of everything that I've handed down, in light of all the realities and the commands I've given, here's what it leads to. Here's what it boils down to. Here's the summary. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What is going to make for peace? And as you pursue peace, it has to be in the context of What is going to upbuild the people of God in the church? It's not always easy. We have to pray for wisdom. But as we live together as a local church, when disagreements arise, here are the two questions we should ask. First, what makes for peace in this situation? Oh, we are to be lovers of peace. We're to strive to be peacemakers that we will be known as sons and daughters of God. When, when you're in a situation with another believer and they have a different view on something than you do, one of the first things that should come into your mind is what can I do in this situation to promote peace? And then second, what will bring about mutual upbuilding? What will help everyone involved love Jesus more and grow in their faith and become more like Jesus? That is the aim. The whole idea of a stumbling block is that you're hindering someone's holiness. Your aim should be to help their holiness. So what does that look like in that particular situation or in that particular situation? Well, we have to depend on Christ. The whole goal is that we would be helping each other's sanctification. The work that God is doing on us by the Holy Spirit is the work of preparing us to be a 
blameless, spotless bride for Christ on the last day. That's the Spirit's aim. We are to join the Spirit in that work. Don't go against the work that the Spirit is doing in your brother or sister because you want to win an argument. Don't have different aims for your brother or sister than Jesus has for them. Jesus died to make them holy. He rose to make them holy. He put the Spirit in your brother and sister in order to make them holy. The Spirit is working to make them holy. Holiness should be your goal for your brother and for your sister. So in every one of these situations, it's clear what glorifies God most here, whatever you can do to help your brother or sisters. Holiness. What makes for peace what makes for mutual upbuilding? All right, very quickly, let me point out three truths from the last statement in the chapter. Okay? Because it is, I think, one of the most important statements in all of the Bible on the subject of sin. It's the very last verse, very last statement. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. First, we see here that the root of all sin is unbelief. Do you see the word whatever in that verse? Whatever. It's an all-encompassing word. It includes your thoughts, your attitudes, your words, your actions. It includes cooking breakfast and hugging your mother and driving your car and checking your mail. And Paul says that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's because the first and most important command of all is that we're to love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is to be everything to you. God is to be your greatest treasure, the one you esteem above everything else. Your entire being exists because of Him. You are sustained by Him, and you live because of His perfect goodness and wisdom and power. You were made to know Him, to live before Him, to walk with Him. You were made to live a Godward life. A God-oriented, a God-saturated life. He is to be everything to you. Unbelief breaks that commandment. The very reason for which you were created. You were created to hug your mother for the glory of God. And if you hug your mother not for the glory of God, you're hugging your mother in rebellion against God. Unbelief does not love God. Unbelief does not trust God. Unbelief rejects God. Unbelief is rebellion against the God who has made you and who is constantly revealing himself to you everywhere you look. And because unbelief is rebellion against God, everything that springs from unbelief, every word, every thought, every attitude, every action is part of that rebellion. Sin starts in the heart. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Human beings sin because by nature we are rebels, born with depraved, rebellious hearts. And that unbelief is at the root of everything an unbeliever does. And unbelief is sin. Second point here. We see, therefore, that all of life is sin for the unbeliever. You ever thought about that? This is who we used to be. Everything we did, every thought we had, every word we spoke, every action we took, sin, 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 just piling up. 
If whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, then everything which proceeds from the heart of an unbeliever is sin. Because what does an unbeliever not have? Faith. So the unbeliever eats and drinks and works and sleeps and marries and has children and goes on vacation and watches TV and mows the lawn and shops at Target. And every bit of it, it's just sin. Unbelievers can give to the poor and it's sin. Unbelievers help an old lady cross the road and it's sin. On a horizontal level, helping that lady cross the road is a good thing, a wonderful deed. But on a vertical level, it's sin. Because it's still done in rebellion against God, refusing to acknowledge Him. You know, there are many Nazis during World War II who did outwardly good things in the service of Nazism. And you might take any one isolated thing and say, wow, that that was a good deed by that soldier, but it was done in the service of Nazism. Blackbeard the pirate, and many other pirates actually, had a pirate's code for their ships. Lists of rights and wrongs. Good behavior. Right? And at any time, a particular pirate might have been doing something that was, a, from any outward look, a good deed. But all in the name of the mission of helping plunder and steal and kill and destroy. So also, before we are Christians... We are part of the kingdom of darkness. And even the good deeds that are done by unbelievers are done in the service of the kingdom of darkness. Most unbelievers don't think this way. They they, they don't say, I'm serving Satan as I... No. But Ephesians 2 is still true. They are. Even the best thoughts, the best word, the best deeds when springing from a heart of unbelief are serving the cause of wickedness. Finally, number three, if that's true, that absolutely every thought, word, attitude, and action of an unbeliever is sin, then is it not amazing that Christ would still look upon sinners and even give his life to save them? Because it's not as if Christ looked at us and we were just a little dirty. Like a kid with grass stains on his knees. That wasn't us. Christ looked at us and we were covered from head to toe with the manure of sin. We had not lived a millisecond without sinning. We breathed sinfully. From conception to the time of our salvation, our hearts were set on ourselves and we were part of the rebellion against the good Lord. Think about how many thoughts you had before you came to Christ. Think about how many attitudes went through your mind each day. Think about how many tones you used, how many facial expressions you used, how many words came out of your your mouth, and all of them, all of it was part of this rebellion. The Bible fairly assesses us and tells us An eternity of torment in hell is what we deserved. And yet Christ looked upon us not just with compassion, but with love. And he didn't just pity us, he determined to make us his own. 
Christ loved us despite our grotesqueness. He became a human being and bore hunger and thirst and mockery and suffering and went to the cross for our sakes. He laid down his life for sinners. He came to save sinners who were sinners through and through. And now by his word, through his spirit, he is cleaning us up. As Christians, the manure of sin is slowly being washed away in us. And the image of God underneath is beginning to shine through. Was it Eustace that became the dragon in the voyage of the dawn treader? And there's that great image of, the, of, the, uh, of him beginning to pull the scales off of himself to reveal the kid underneath. Right? That's what God's doing in us. He's, he's slowly removing the hardness and the sin and the wickedness to make us like Jesus. For us who are Christians, we ought to marvel that Jesus loved us and we ought to swim in the love of Jesus for us. And then marveling at the love of Jesus for us, we should be compelled to love each other the same way. If Jesus loved me when I was nothing but sin, 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 and everything I'd ever done said thought, how can we not overflow in love to each other even when we disagree and surely we can be careful with each other not to be a stumbling block not to make it harder for our brother or sister to follow Jesus but to do everything we can to be a help amen all right